This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 360th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a 36-year-old Korean-American who has become a highly regarded actor and bona fide sex symbol on both sides of the Pacific. He shot to international stardom as Glenn Ree on the AMC drama series The Walking Dead, on which he appeared from 2010 through 2016, and he since has won great notices for his work in three films that speak to both Americans and Koreans. 2017's Okja from director Bong Joon-ho, 2018's Burning from director Lee Chang-dong, for which he won Best Supporting Actor prizes from the National Society of Film Critics and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and most recently, Minari from director Lee Isaac Chung, a film about a Korean family that relocates to small town Arkansas in the 1980s which won the Audience Award and Grand Jury Prize for U.S. Dramatic Films at this year's Sundance Film Festival, which will have an awards qualifying run starting on December 11th and then begin rolling out in theaters on February 12th, and for which there is growing Oscar buzz for its lead actor, who is also one of its executive producers, Stephen Yun. Over the course of our conversation, the 36-year-old and I discussed his own experience of immigrating to America how he wound up getting into improvisational comedy in Chicago and then screen acting in Los Angeles, the unlikely series of events that led him to be cast in The Walking Dead and then in each of the major films that he has made since, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always begin on this podcast with just a few basic biographical details. So for folks who may not know, can you share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Yeah, um, I was born in Seoul, South Korea. We immigrated in 1988, right before the Seoul Olympics. My mom told my dad, 
not to do it to wait till after the Olympics to sell their house. But my dad is a ambitious man and <laughs> impatient. And right. so uh, we left. And then uh, I'm, I think if I remember correctly, uh, housing market skyrocketed. So, um, <laughs> uh, Korea became a massive, uh, GDP, um, right. country, but yeah, we, we immigrated in 88 and then, um, found our way to Canada first in Saskatchewan. And then, uh, after about a year there, we made our way down to Michigan. And then I was raised in first downriver Taylor, Michigan. And then we moved to um, the suburbs of Detroit and uh, Troy. And that's kind of where I spent most of my childhood. And did your parents practice the same type of work in Korea that they ended up doing in North America? Yeah. So my mother was a homemaker and my father was an architect actually in Korea. And um, he told me that he took a business trip in the late 70s and he saw Minnesota and the expansive land uh, that it had. And he made a decision then and there that he wanted to move to America. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we moved to America and um, he actually ended up starting kind of from the bottom, working at my uncle's uh, jean and clothing store until he built his own business doing a beauty supply. Now, when you came to North America, your name was not yet Stephen, right? So how did that no. come about? <laughs> well, my, my, my Korean name was, is, is Hangyup. And when I came over here, my parents didn't know what to name me. And so the story goes, at least how they tell it, is that um, they met a doctor in Canada and his name was Stephen. And that was enough for them. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess, you know, reading as much as I could about you to prep, I, I, I don't get the sense that it was a very diverse school that you came into when you came to the States, but that mm -hmm. there was sort of a polar opposite experience at church where, you know, maybe that was a bit of a refuge and, mm -hmm. You know, as you've looked back at things, you've I've seen a number of times use the the phrase inherited trauma to sort of describe beyond whatever you were feeling that what anyone would feel from moving at four or five years old. There was maybe a little more gravity to the whole situation. Can you explain for people who aren't familiar with what that term might mean or how it would apply to a person who's coming from a Korean background? Just what you think came with you when you arrived here? Sure. Well, you know, I don't, I, I'm definitely not any type of authority on any of this stuff, but I will say what I seem to be uncovering for me personally and larger amongst peers, um, regardless of culture, really, um, is just this idea that, you know, you pass down epigenetics, you pass down, you know, um, circumstances of prior generations. And, re and in regards to Korea, um, the war was so massive. The The war broke families, the war decimated, not only by splitting them, but also like the subsequent aftermath just decimated people and, and, and kind of the rebuilding of Korea also, in some ways, made families dive deeper into kind of the middle class struggle of just, you know, the father goes out to work, and the mother stays home to raise the kids. Um, there was a submission to that. And um, perhaps that's everywhere. But, you know, when I think about the ways in which I wasn't able to communicate emotionally with my parents, and then um, as we open up over time and age, 
And they admit to me about how they weren't able to talk to their parents even more so, you know, those types of things and physical, probably genetic things passing down, uh, just kind of carry with it um, the story of our people's history and uh, specifically my family's history. And so, yeah, it's been interesting to be perhaps the the first generation that is getting a real crack at stopping the cycle or at least healing to some regard. My parents both came from um, farming families. And so, you know, when I hear my dad tell of his past, he doesn't, he doesn't, he has really disparate memories. And um, I don't know if he's able to go deep into them. And you see, there's a lot of repressed emotion there. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, those things kind of trickle down. Interesting. Well, Eventually, you go off to Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, mm-hmm. Michigan, home of the great Derek Cheater, and yeah. uh, n- now you as well. Uh, and I wonder if you can just describe what you imagine when you showed up there that your four years there and maybe beyond would look like, and then what happened there that really shook that up? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I wish I, wish I had better, better memory if I'm being honest with you, um, <laughs> sir, like I, you know, I'm sometimes still in disbelief at the way that my life has panned out up to this point. And maybe, maybe the benefit, but also the dysfunction is that I'm really good at like, just telling myself things were all fine. But I'm sure if I looked back, there were many moments that that weren't and felt a little bit more perilous than I remember. Um, but you know, when I think about college, you know, all of my friends were going to University of Michigan or Michigan State or um, getting into Ivy League schools or, you know, just kind of doing the classical path. And for me, I remember I, my grades weren't good enough to get into my dream school, which at the time was Northwestern. There's no chance. I was just too terrible of a student. And um, <laughs> I, I, I was it was risky to even apply. I was scared to get rejected from University of Michigan out of fear of letting down everybody in my ecosystem and exposing myself and my grades. Uh, so I remember going to a school college fair and this woman, Annie Robertson, I think that's her name. Um, she was just at the end of this long hallway at this small booth for Kalamazoo College and I had never heard of it before. And I locked eyes with her and she was just like telling me to come and I was like okay and I walked over there got a pamphlet she was so sweet and I don't know something drew me to her and that table and then I decided I was going to go to Kalamazoo College partly because I thought that I needed to make an alternate pivot in order to not put myself up against I guess what I was supposed to do because I knew that if I did what I was supposed to do I probably would fail what were you supposed to do? Go to University of Michigan or an <laughs> Ivy League school. <laughs> and so I pivoted from self-protection and also honestly, like kind of like really like a, I felt moved in some way to to seek that out. And and then when I did some, did some more digging, I, I realized that it was a really great school, that it was like a really wonderful school for people and people just didn't really know about it. Um, and I would ask my teachers and they were like, oh, that's a great school. You should really apply. And I found my way over there. And I think as a Korean American kid, the biggest thing that that school set up for me was it wasn't so easy to find a safe space for me. 
you know, going to a big, uh, big state school, you can kind of find whatever you're comfortable with and stay in stasis if you want to. And for me, I was just forced to be enveloped by everyone and everything. And I remember the first year, I was so lucky I got put into this suite with some, and I still know all these friends. It became this eclectic mix of people from all walks of life kind of smashed together in a suite together. And we became really fast friends. And then we grew and we, you know, added more to the friend group, but like that core dynamic really stayed. And when I look back on it, you know, some of my, the people that I learned the most from are probably in that group. So it was pretty wonderful. And one, I believe either one of that group or somebody living very near that group had the last name Klepper. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. Um, Jordan Klepper was my friend Casey Klepper, who lived across the hall from me, her brother. And she's the one that kind of like pulled me into improv world. I remember I went with her to see our school's improv show and I was so blown away. And I was like, wow, that that sounds, that looks so fun to do. And um, I auditioned and did all that and, you know, totally like picked Jordan's brain whenever I could. Um, not at school because he wasn't there anymore, but I always had a pathway kind of to him through Casey, which was really wonderful. And so, yeah, it was when I think about that, it's very bizarre. <laughs> well, so the this improv group, I think it's pronounced as a Moncapult. Is that how you? Yeah, Moncapult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so college improv. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you didn't get in as a freshman, but in a way, I guess did that sort of light a fire under your ass to get more involved, get more prepped to go back for it subsequently? Yeah. I mean, you know what, when I think about it, there wasn't this massive feeling of rejection because in some ways, like I knew I had no chance. And so I kind of blindly went into it. And then after I didn't get in, I was like, okay, you know, I still am interested in this. Why don't I take a class? And so I took uh, the school's improv class uh, with Ed Menta who was the head of the theater part department and somebody I, I really, I really love. And yeah, he, he really kind of broke me open and, you know, college for me, especially as a Korean American kid that had been kind of living dual lives of having the church as my safe space to be myself. And then school as a place where I play my persona. It was really nice to find myself throughout the course of those four years. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you was, I mean, prior to college, had there been any sort of indication that, you know, were you the class clown? Were you into comedy? Did you watch a lot? Or did that just sort of come out of truly just watching that improv group as a freshman? I think I was always into comedy in the sense that, like, I like making people laugh. And perhaps, like, that's the first indicator of knowing that, you know, you're make, you're entertaining somebody. Drama is a little harder to sell on the fly. But yeah, and also honestly, like comedy as kind of like a kid living in the gaps, it's your self-defense, right? It's mm -hmm. it's your it's your way of deflecting a situation and and also a way of deflecting the pain for for yourself too, you know, mm -hmm. just kind of brushing it off. And so it, it was more that muscle than anything. And um then I just found it interesting because it felt fulfilling. It felt exhilarating to make a room laugh. It felt exhilarating to have me who usually in spaces like this that are not 
a Korean church. I'm more of just kind of a guy on the wall or like the guy on the side. And um, to be in front was really, really incredible. Really, really incredible. I remember I auditioned for my school's high school announcements and I didn't make it. And I was like, man, if I can't even make our school's announcements, like (laughs) (laughs) I got to... I really got to study biology hard, you know, I'm, I mean, like I had, and so, but at church, um, I was a church praise band leader. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always liked being in front. I liked performance. I liked in some ways leading, uh, the attention of a group of people, but I never knew it. It, I could never delineate it or like kind of narrow it down to that. It was always, I was always in service of something. Like if you're doing praise band, you're in service of, you know, leading church praise. And so I was never aware of that until I got to college and I just started picking at this itch. And then um, before I knew it, I was doing plays and just digging deeper into it. Yeah, it was, it, it, when I think back on it, it was truly kind of like a mashup. It's it such a trip. Yeah. Well, graduate in 05. And at that point, I guess you have to, sort of have a conversation probably first with yourself and then with your folks Mm. about, you know, what are you actually going to pursue now? (laughs) Uh, How did that go? (laughs) Uh, You know, it was weird. I remember in um, my senior year of college, I did this staged reading of, I think, a play that some other students had written and this woman came to the stage reading performances um, who I'd never seen before in the faculty or at all. She could have just been some random woman that came through. And she, after the, after the stage performance, she comes up to me and she just said, you should try this because the industry is going to need people like you in it. And I was like, what? And I was just, <laughs> for me, I was like, I'm just here doing this thing for fun. Um, what are you talking about? Ominous woman that I've never met before. Um, <laughs> and she didn't introduce so incur- herself? No, just literally dropped a compliment and then left and disappeared like into the air, you know? Um, wow. And she stayed with me because I was like, all unsure about what I was to do after graduation. I took the LSATs. I was about to take the MCATs. I applied for Teach for America. Um, <laughs> I did. I liked it. All the things you're you supposed to do. covered everything, yeah. I covered every base. And I just needed this woman to show up and tell me I should give this a shot. And so I told my parents that I wanted to move to Chicago and kind of cut my teeth in improv and see what happens and sketch. Was that because Klepper was there? Um, no, not really. Not, I mean, not only, I mean, that was like, obviously like a wonderful added bonus that I had someone to kind of aspire to or look towards as kind of a guiding post, but not to say that Jordan didn't, uh, help. He was so gracious. He actually, like the first time I got there, he, 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 he sat down with me and took me out to coffee and like, we chatted about stuff, but also like that game in and of itself is just a singular journey anyhow. Um, and so I kind of went out there I went out there with a job at this at this IT company where I was doing inside sales. It was oh my god, I was selling IT services to 
random companies by cold calling them. Oh, yeah, it was rough. It was really rough. And I remember, you know, just really not feeling like it was for me. Um, never being in such a stark corporate environment before that. And it kind of scared me. And then on my way out, as I kind of told my folks too, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I closed this one last deal, the seed of a deal for the company through a cold call. But then also I was blogging about it during like Zanga days um, <laughs> about my experience there. And they found it on my exit and they're like, wow. Hey, like talk about burning bridges, but you know, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm it okay. Worked out. Yeah. yeah. I'm all right. Um, <laughs> and so you're in Chicago after that with, you know, having to have a, I, I guess a day job, but also is it in the evenings that your involvement with actually, it seems like multiple groups of, mm -hmm. I don't know if sketch and improv were, it was totally separate stuff that you were, but just like, how were you evolving comedic as a, you know, comedy person uh, there as a comedian? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you're kind of just starting off like for trying to find a community. I, I, it took classes at Improv Olympic, IO, Improv Olympic at the time, IO later. And then I was also taking classes at Second City. And I was just kind of doing the standard thing all the while um, auditioning for shows or groups and such. And um, I also found a group in this all Asian American sketch group called Sir Friday Night, who, you know, they were my family in Chicago. You know, I was able to, I still, some of them are some of my still closest friends, you know, you know, Harrison, I just saw yesterday, Harrison Pack, um, Carl Anderson. These are two guys that um, Carl had a restaurant and he was gracious enough to employ me. He also created a stage for me to meet my wife, which was wow. crazy. Yeah, I owe him a in lot. In Chicago. Wow. In Chicago, um, on the street. Uh, it was crazy. <laughs> and then- um, Wow. And, and Harrison and Carl were always just my comedy friends that we could kind of just like riff and talk, talk shit and talk, talk comedy together. It kind of in our own insular way, you know, um, a, a safe space of sorts in that way too. And then also on the outside, I was just auditioning. And I remember I auditioned for the Second City Touring Company, not expecting anything, but I got this Steve Carell sketch that... Uh, he wrote in this way where I could read every ellipses and like I could read, I, I read it in his sketch the way he wrote it. I was like, I know exactly how this sketch should go. So he had written this way before or he was still yes. at that time? Okay. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the touring company does the classics. So it does prior show sketches yeah. and tours them. And so Steve Carell, Steve Colbert, like Second City's, you know, historic institution, um, they had old sketches from all these like big, big people. And I got handed during my audition, the Steve Carell sketch where I come to my girlfriend's house to drop off my Christmas present. And she starts giving me a series of incredible presents like... Michael Jordan signed Jersey <laughs> season tickets to the bulls. Um, like just like incredible stuff, like a series of like eight gifts. And increasingly I get more and more worried until I get to my present and it's a humidifier that I got from CVS and I'm trying to like upsell it by being like, look, it has like multiple knobs for, you know, ultimate variants of humidity. And like he wrote it. It's so funny. And I, and, um, that scene went really well and it caught the attention of some of the producers over there. And 
um, I didn't get put on touring company right away or actually at all. Um, I did, but I was more of an understudy. And then I got put on a boat. I did a boat for a while. I did second city <laughs> cruise ship for, for a couple months, which was its own, <laughs> its own situation. <laughs> well, so, you know, some of the folks who we've had on the podcast who went through second city in, in one form or another, I think going back, probably the earliest I believe would have been, Levy and O'Hara, right? They were some of the yeah. earliest. Yeah. Um, oh, man. They've talked about, you know, the for many of them, the ultimate goal was that you get that SNL opportunity or something, SNL audition. Right. Was that ever in the possibility in the cards? You know, I think I still struggle with this uh, to some degree. And maybe this is like a larger just it's personal to me, but I'm sure it's a larger thing. But just I I, I just couldn't even dream it. I couldn't even see it, you know. I, I was just doing step by step by step. Um, I didn't have like a long term goal per se, like a tangible one, like SNL. I, in some ways, didn't ever feel like I could fit there. Um, probably because at the time, like, you know, I was even saying like, who would I play? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what Asian person in the zeitgeist could I even? do that's not accented in some way mm-hmm. um but i mean like you look at it now and it's like god bless bo and yang you know to go in there and just break it open but yeah at the time i i i didn't see a path for me and also i think in the community i wasn't really the funniest one by any means it wasn't it wasn't the uh, obsession with comedy that i was obsessed with uh that i was into it was more just self-expression i think and so yeah, I never really thought I was I had a track to SNL, which is why I I eventually just left. Well, and I think another just to, you know, it's not like this is ancient history, but it is approximately 15 years ago, right? And I think yeah, that wow. you know, I, one thing we should I want to bring up just cuz I came upon it in the reading and and it seems relevant is that even as recently as around then, people were a lot less sensitive about what they were asking people to do at even just to audition for, right? What mm. was, what was awesome eighties prom? Oh boy. Um, awesome eighties prom is like Tony and Tina's wedding. Have you heard of Tony and Tina's wedding? Sure. Like it's yeah. right. It's an immersive improv experience where they stage a prom in eighties theme and it has all your favorite archetypes in it. And one of the archetypes is long duck dong. Just, caricature of an Asian man. And I remember I got my first agent at the time and she, it was a small agency I found through the newspaper or something like that. I don't remember. And she called to say she has an audition for me to do this thing. And I walked in and it was like, prepare an eighties monologue. And I did Ferris Bueller's intro, intro monologue. And they're like, okay, that was good. Can you do that all in an Asian accent? And I literally, I think I said no, and I left. And it wasn't like I'd left like in a huff. I was just like, uh, I'm not really good at an Asian accent. Like I kind of like wriggled my way out of that situation. But what was funny is they still called me back and asked me if I wanted to do it because <laughs> probably because there wasn't enough Asian people that they could oh get to do that God. thing. And oh so, yeah. And so I, I, they called me and my agent was like, cool. Like, you know, I'm sure she's a young small market agent, agent at the time, just trying to get commission on anything. 
and I said I wouldn't do it. And, you know, that's probably got to sound insane to someone like that to be like, what do you mean you're not going to do work? Like you just got here, like you can't demand to not do it. Um, so she got really angry at me. And uh, I'm pretty sure I stopped being represented after that. But um, yeah, yeah. And for, from your point of view, that was because already you were self-possessed enough to be like, there are some things that are just not worth doing. Perhaps. Yeah. I think, I think growing up in the way that I did and the viewpoint that I always had, you know, I think part of it is also I immigrated here. So I know a lot of other Asian American friends who were born here and there's always, and, and I don't know if this is to be true. I'm just kind of projecting this, but like I hear often this story that they were made aware of their otherness at some point, like at their formative years under the guise that they weren't different. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, I came here like out the gate knowing I was different. And, um, you know, my f earliest memories that I have is my parents dragging me to kindergarten, kicking mm -hmm. and screaming down the hallway. Um, and then they just setting me down in front of class with Play-Doh because I didn't know how to speak the language and everything was foreign to me. And so um, it was definitely a shock for a five-year-old to experience. Well, and you've said another stuff. I don't know if, you know, I believe it's accurately reported that you even as a kid sort of in a sense, wish you're white so that you don't have to deal with the, the shit. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, um, again, like that seems to me like standard suburb minority fare in some ways, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think I had this massive chip on my shoulder because I knew what fullness perhaps tasted like up until five years old. And then I was kind of put into this box, partly, for myself too, I put myself in that box out of fear as well. Um, but also it was kind of just constantly regurgitated to me or reflected back to me that I am this other thing. And so, yeah, I, 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 there was that, there was, there was also just trying to remain safe. You know, there was also just assimilation, just trying to be a part of it while not, but I also had Korean church to always kind of let me, uh, allow me to touch a truer sense of myself. And so, yeah, I think coming out of college and getting approached with things like that, it wasn't me having some mission statement to be like, I'm never doing accent stuff. Part of it was that I don't think I was into it at all anyways. Um, but I guess it was more along the lines of, I just really needed to be me and I needed people to see me for who I thought I was. And more importantly, I needed to see myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think I knew that. Was this a contributing thing to, you know, 05, you're out of college. I think you're pretty quickly into Chicago from there. It wasn't a long time. Mm -hmm. And then four years out of college, only, you know, only that amount of time in Chicago. Now it's like, I'm going to go to LA at a time when, again, there's not it's not like there were tons more opportunities for right. uh, Asian people in, in Hollywood than there, I would think, would have been in Chicago. So what for you, you know, at the age of 25, this is 2009, why go to L.A.? I, th I think at first I asked my parents to give me two years 
And then I asked them to give me two, two more years. Um, <laughs> but what was really cool about the journey and continues to be cool about the journey is, is that each year built on itself. And I will say that is a thing that I always remember Jordan telling me. And like Jordan, Jordan was like, he said, um, the, when he, when we met, he's like, you know, here are some things. And he's just talking to like a kid, you know, he's just like, here's some things that you can actively pursue to like, you know, get, make your dreams come true if you can, which is like, take every day and try to apply something that helps you achieve this larger goal. Like do something, read a book about it. Like do a, you know, record yourself, like read a script, whatever it is, just do something every day to reach this goal. And I didn't really forget. I never forgot that there was, I, I think it was less that, um, that allowed me to do something every day because I'm also a lazy person at times. <laughs> um, but it was more like he gave me a roadmap in some ways of a hopefulness of like, of knowing that each day is new and you can make it something and each week is even more new and each month is even more new and even each year is even even more new and so i always felt this draw to you know if i didn't make it this day then i was going to do it the next day or the next week or um, i was always looking forward to something and so um each year built on itself and uh i remember i got to 2009 and i don't I don't know what possessed me. I think maybe I saw that the next phase at Second City was cutting my teeth further to then hopefully make it onto a stage, which I didn't think I was worthy enough for, Then and then to parlay that further into a shot at SNL, which I couldn't even imagine myself on a stage at that point. I didn't even know what SNL could have been for me. And so I said, you know, I think I just have to like go for it like I just have to like roll the dice hard and so I remember telling everybody I was leaving to Los Angeles on purpose so I couldn't back out and it was just this consuming thought that I kept telling others and eventually like I put myself in a position where I couldn't back out and so I just <laughs> went and when you got there I mean it's not like you as far as I know had a whole bunch of contacts lined up or anything so how is it that within all within i mean you had a very eventful six months and maybe yeah. <laughs> i'll leave it i'll leave it to you to just like connect the dots for how this is possible and hopefully you know i mean this is gonna this is gonna torture our yeah listeners who are <laughs> actors but it at the same time it's it shows that it is it is possible and i'm curious how yeah i mean i i came out here I had just met my wife at the time, or my girlfriend at the time, but who was to be my wife. Um, and we'd only been dating for about six months. So even leaving her was pretty rough. And so she drove out with me and landed in LA. I took her to the airport, sent her off on the plane, weeping in the airport because I was like, I got nobody. You know, I had my best friend, Andy, who was out here. He was my roommate. So I had some some place to dock, you know, uh, myself. But in terms of this journey as an actor, it was incredibly lonely at the time. And I had a manager who had taken me on um, because he produced this movie that I did in Chicago called My Name is Jerry. He, he took me on and Bruce Economou, he is one of the greatest humans that took a shot on 
a random kid from nowhere. And I'm always super grateful to him for that. And so he, he kind of set me up to put me on a couple auditions, uh, put me in front of a couple of agencies. But the first audition I had, it was for like a NCIS or something like that. And uh, I, I remember going to this, to the, to the audition and there was three scenes and I got, I did the first scene and the first scene, my, I was just shaking. The page was just <laughs> rattling in my hand because also I had never even seen a situation like that before. I never even knew what like studios looked like. I never even knew that you would go into a random office in a small room and just like do an audition in front, in front of somebody. It was always theaters, you know? So it, it was all new and scary. And I remember um, after I did the first scene, they were just like, okay, cool. And I was like, there's another scene. They're like, no, we're okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I went home super depressed because I knew I just totally ate it. And I remember that day I said, I, lo- I went on the internet and I was just like, restaurants near me that are hiring. And right down the street when I was living in K-Town, there was this place at the time called Maitreya. That's just um, this Italian fusion clubby K-Town bar (laughs) slash restaurant that I was totally like not cool enough to be working at, you know, and I, they, they gave me a job on the, on the spot, which was incredible. And I had that dream or that wish fulfilled of just having some semblance of safety, uh, of income. And then I got really lucky and I booked a couple of commercial gigs, one where I'm diving into a vat of caramel in speedos for milky um, way so, right? <laughs> yeah milky way so i mean yes it's all been very fortuitous but like don't think i haven't suffered uh, <laughs> uh like they after we were done covered in whatever fake caramel there was i remember they're like all right stand right there and they would like cold blast just hose you down <laughs> in naked speedos in like a cold california night i was like what is oh what am i God. doing <laughs> Um, uh, but pays the bills for a few months. Yeah, yeah truly, <laughs> truly. And then uh, pilot season came along the following year, and um, I auditioned for this show. I got really far for this sitcom, and I got to test. And then they tell you how much money you're going to make, and you're like, "Oh my god, my life is going to change. <laughs> this is crazy." And what was great, what was interesting about that role, though, was that role was exactly what was available to an Asian guy like myself at the time in a sitcom, which was like an assistant that is like happy-go-lucky, happy to be there, and also like frenetic and like neurotic and awkward and asexual, you know? And, but to, to, you know, but the, but the truth is, is like, for me, like I wasn't even aware of my own self at that point. And so for me, I was like, cool, like I can play this. I'm good at this. Right. I'm good at this role. I've played this my whole life in some ways. And so I went thinking that it was in the bag for me because I was like, this is for me. And then I didn't <laughs> get it. And I was devastated again. Um, my manager called me and he was just like, you didn't get it. We'll get the next one. But I felt like in my heart of hearts at the time, I was like, that was my only shot. Like God gave me one shot and that was it to play this mm-hmm. neurotic assistant and i couldn't get it <laughs> just how think just like how different things could have been if you did get it <laughs> oh my god well yeah truly because that thing didn't even get picked up and if i would have gotten it i wouldn't have been able i wouldn't have been even able to audition for walking dead and uh, that was crazy was there something with so was big bank was big bang theory 
that part that, or you did get something on Big Bang Theory. Yes. So the same casting directors who were very sweet to me um, was like, we like this kid. Let's throw him a bone. And I think they gave me this small role kind of just to get my feet wet, which was really cool. And was was there anything to do with Big Bang Theory bringing you to the attention of Walking Dead or was that totally independent? No, it was totally independent. The Walking Dead, thank God Robert Kirkman wrote an Asian character and they were looking very literally for an Asian character. And I went in there and Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas, the casting directors, um, they were also very gracious with me in breaking me, in kind of like pushing me to like, you know, expose myself more. And so I eventually landed in front of Frank Darabont and and rode the wild, wild ride of The Walking Dead for seven years. And we'll just say for anyone who was not watching, which by the numbers was not a lot of, you know, most people were, <laughs> uh, it feels like Glenn Ree, pizza delivery guy who winds up fighting zombies in a post-apocalyptic world on The Walking Dead, 2010 to 2016 for you, 66 episodes. And I guess, you know, you were there at the very beginning. Did you have any conception that this could be so popular? I mean, it's now, I believe, the highest rated series in the history of cable television. Wow. Um, did you have any reason to believe that was going to be the case? No, not at all. I mean, I, not because I couldn't see it. I think other people in the cast were kind of buzzing as we were making the first season to be like, this is something special, guys. Like, this is this is very something's happening. And for me, I'm just like, I got a job. Someone's <laughs> going to pay me to do this. Um, right. I, you know, my second episode that I was ever on was this massive set piece where Andy Lincoln and I were running down a shutdown street of, of Atlanta, Georgia, filled with over 300 extras in zombie gear running down <laughs> on a rain machine as I was slashing walkers running away to this fence to jump over. And this is where sometimes I wonder, like, if I have amnesia or if I'm just maybe kind of slow in general. <laughs> like, um, I, I wasn't aware to be afraid of it at the time until I did it. And then I and then I look back and I was like, I can't believe what I just did mm -hmm. without batting an eye. Mm -hmm. And that was really eye opening for me. It was, that, that experience for me was really I'm so blessed by it. It was pretty incredible. Let's just note, why is Glenn from Michigan? Probably because I said he's from Michigan. <laughs> well, I, and you were saying there was something about you had an accent, uh, yeah, a Michigan that's right. accent. <laughs> yes, right. I had, a, I had a strong Michigan accent at the time, um, and maybe still. And uh, they were like, where do you think his character's from? I was like, uh, Michigan? They're like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> They're like, cool, we'll just make it from Michigan. <laughs> now, to, to just show how two very different worlds can kind of influence each other so here you are in dystopia essentially and what what music did you i read you drew on certain music to get in the mindset of your character whenever you had an emotional scene yeah. what would that have been well that was christian praise music was what got me into an emotional place and i used that as my crutch until i could use it no more <laughs> <laughs> You exhausted the Christian praise music genre. <laughs> well, I realized I was building my skill on not on the internal work, but really on like an external kind of manipulation device. And so that's where it kind of wore out its its efficacy. But also, yeah, at the time, I guess that's 
the only place that I really knew how to, how to access emotion from. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, on the one hand, Glenn is, you know, was sort of remarkable in the sense that at least for that time, remarkable that, all right, it's an Asian guy where that's not overtly relevant to the story. On the other hand, I get the sense that as you're, you know, these are now six, seven years with the show that you had there as the time went by, there was maybe some frustration on your part that he didn't evolve more from being this optimistic, nice guy who, I mean, even the fact that you initially, there was a lot of humor that mm. in the, given the circumstances was not going to, there wasn't going to be more of that. So yeah. at a certain point, you, you sort of described it as a, a beige character and just had some frustrations. It seems like, is that a fair reading of what happened over time? Yeah. You know, I will say like, especially now in hindsight and after like a little bit more maturity coming out of that situation, I think I can only kind of say it was a confluence of a multitude of things. I think I was putting, I was, I was kind of telling myself I was that as well. I mean, I couldn't see who I was clearly or who I could be as Steven. And here I am playing this character that's like so immersive that seven years on it, you're thinking and breathing this character. But on top of that, the world is reflecting this character back onto you. And so it was this weird feeling that I was always walking around being considered kind of just genial and like, you know, nice and harmless when, you know, the internal struggle of my character and even for Steven was, uh, myself was just so multitudinous. Like it was, it was, you know, it was all the things I was angry. I could be vengeful. I could be happy. I could be bitter. I could be all these things, but I was constantly asked to perform and also performed because maybe perhaps that's the only way I knew how to a version of myself that was palatable. And so, you know, the loop of it all was very, um, imprisoning. And so, you know, I can't blame anybody for writing it that way. I think I serviced myself in that way as they also wrote it for me. Um, and I just kind of looped that over and over. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's less to do with anyone trying to keep me under anybody's thumb and more to do with, I had felt like I outgrew that character in particular. It was interesting though, as well, that, I mean, you were as popular as just about anybody on that show. And yet it was noted by certain observers that the promotion and merchandising and certain things like that was not necessarily commensurate with that. Was that ever something that was registering with you or were you too busy with the day-to-day -day of the show? Well, I mean, that's something that I would never like really harp on or bring up or things like that, but those are small things that you notice. And I think, I think, you know, it's, it's really to do with probably actual numbers and to some degree and really to do with a lot of precedent, right? Like I think, you know, are people buying tons of Glenn things? I don't know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe they want, you know, there was, I think with Glenn, when I look, think about him, like he was more of a window for the audience to access kind of that reality. Whereas other characters were more aspirational characters. And if I was buying a poster, I would buy ultimate warrior i wouldn't buy like the random you know what i mean like i would right. and but there's some truth to like the power that glenn 
represented um, in that moment, in that place. And so I think for me personally, too, it took me a while to understand how that character was loved and why that character was loved, which also was, you know, at the time, a reflection to me about if I was loved or how I was loved or how I was received. Um, and so, yeah, that was what a trip to be. What a trip. <laughs> well, so this journey, spoiler alert for anyone who's years behind, um, ended <laughs> with a, a skull bashing for the ages, right? Just a really rough ending. <laughs> yeah, And yet uh, one that I, I get the sense you sort of relished. I don't know if it was because you were kind of hoping for him to have a memorable ending or because you were ready to move on mm. to the next chapter. But the fact of the matter is that soon after that, I just wonder what your what your state of mind was, because, again, I don't think there were like six things lined up that you had planned yeah. that this is why I'm leaving. And in fact, when those things started to come the next pilot season, you were not going for them, even though in this case now for the first time you're getting leading roles on, you know, potentially major shows being offered to you. So just how did you feel about the uh, demise of Glenn and then also yourself in that moment after where it's like, what do I do now? Yeah. You know, I think at the time and kind of something that I hold on to still is I'm very aware, at least for myself, when it seems like the universe is giving me a binary kind of problem where it's like either you say yes or you say no. And I relish those decisions. I crumble at the feet of multiple choice. I'm <laughs> terrible. Um, but if it's like, hey, like I'm telling the universe is saying like, you're going to be off this show now. And that's just what it is. I'm usually not too harsh about fighting that. Um, and for me, um, maybe I was self-justifying my way out of it. And it was still painful to leave because it was leaving familiar things and familiar faces and job security and multitude of other things. But when Robert wrote that comic of Glenn dying, I remember my cousin called me. He's like, hey, are you worried? And I was like, I mean, I don't know, like, looks like I got to <laughs> die. Like, like, you know, like there's there's something so refreshing and I probably can only really say this because that show took such good care of me. You know, I, as a young kid, I was able to be around such incredible performers to learn and like a sponge from them, get so much experience, get a lot of reps and also be kind of financially secure afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at it and said, like, if this isn't the time to leave, then I don't know what is. And I did mm -hmm. not foresee myself being on this show for decades. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like, badass. He gets mm -hmm. pummeled to death. <laughs> and if that doesn't kind of end that chapter of my life in such a literal way, then I don't know what else does. Right. And so I, 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 I welcomed it, you know? It was still sad, but I welcomed it. Were you then... Did you have something specifically in mind that you were specific in mind that you were hoping would be next? Or, I mean, what was it that made you say, speaking of a binary choice, all right, somebody comes to you and says, we want to give you probably, you know, potentially even more money to be the star of the, the sole star of a show that is, you know, going to get you cool points or whatever, you know, it's a slick character. Yeah. Why? And not just one, but it sounds like there were quite a few. Mm. 
Why did you pass on those? Well, they were they were precedent making in that they were offers to an Asian American guy as a lead. And not that um, that was it. But when you when I read the scripts, I was like, this is just Glenn repackaged. And um, if I had spent so much, you know, mind hours, you know, pondering whether I wanted to be in this skin anymore and I was being given a new skin that looked almost identical just on a different show, I wasn't interested. And, you know, I think fame and that kind of fame really took me for quite a ride for the middle portions of that show years, mostly because, you know, it affects everybody. But I mean, from my vantage point, I was like a kid from nowhere, from the middle of the middle of the middle, like... Not only am I an immigrant living in the gaps, I'm also from the Midwest. Like, I'm also from Michigan suburbs. Like, I'm from, like, you know, <laughs> beige U.S. I'm in the middle of nowhere, you know? Yeah. And um, not to put down my hometown. Like, my hometown's yeah. the best. It has real people. But, you know, when you're up against the glitz and glamour of the cities, like, you feel really like a nobody. And so it was all so wild. Like, I I just, I yeah, I, I just couldn't go back to playing something like that again and so that was that was my thing i i just I, I needed to find i think myself well so this sets us up for the uh home stretch of this amazing film period for you that really i guess in a sense this ch this chapter began with okja in 2017 then both sorry to bother you and burning in 2018 and now of course minari for 2020 and I hope we can just kind of briefly touch on each leading up to Minari because not many people have had a, a four-year stretch that includes four films like those. And also, not only that the, the parts are the and the performances and the films themselves are good, but the cross-cultural reach and challenges and all of that, which I just want to briefly pose to you. So starting with Okja, this is where you're playing Kay, the animal rights activist and sort of translator between a group of English-speaking people who go to Korea to try to rescue a genetically engineered super pig and the young girl who is the guardian of the pig. How did you even first meet director Bong, and then how did he come to offer you this this part? And for people just to who need a reference point if they're not as immersed in his filmography, or this is the guy who now just won four Oscars at the Academy yeah. Awards this year, <laughs> tying an all-time record for Parasite. So anyway, take it away. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I was in Korea at the time um, promoting Walking Dead because it had made its way out there. And kind of being the Korean kid, I was just kind of doing the thing and it was, it was really wonderful. And my friend Chris Lee, who represents me out there, he connected we, me with Director Bong and Director Bong was gracious enough to meet me for coffee. And we just chatted. I, I fanned out on him. I said I loved his films. Um, I just watched Memories of Murder like a like a year before I met him, and I was I loved it. And Mother and Host and all those all of his films are so incredible. You know, I just wanted to meet him. I got to meet him, and I actually got to meet um, Director Park as well, Park Chan Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a cool summer. That was a cool, cool summer. Yeah. <laughs> um, after meeting Director Bong, he emailed me, I think a couple months later, saying, hey, I have this thought and I have this part that you might be perfect for. I'm writing it with you in mind. 
Um, I'll show it to you when the time is right. And it worked out, you know, it, it just kind of appeared that way. And, and perhaps what he saw in me at the time was K, you know, just a kid caught in the middle of two separate places and trying to do his best. And he was like, I think you can channel this. And, um, I, I, yeah, that, that, but I wasn't aware of how to cast something like that. I wasn't in his mind at the time. And so I was just like, I'm part of this thing. Like it's director Bong. This is so cool. Like look at the people involved, incredible. And I get to play what are, I get to go back to create a work. Like that's so cool. And um, that movie was very painful. Well, and that's what I, I kind of gather. And I wonder if just to my sense is the reason it was painful was that that may have been the first realization for you. And please, obviously, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but my sense is, OK, so I don't feel entirely American when I'm in America, mm. but I now find that for the first time in my life, I'm really as an adult spending time in Korea and mm -hmm. I'm not really feeling quite Korean either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was that because I'd been to Korea multiple times before I go to visit family, like, you know, periodically, but you know, you're there usually under the guise of some sort of like school program, you're doing like a Korean intensive, or you're just kind of like living like young adult life, like having fun, getting drunk or something or whatever, doing your thing, uh, meeting other Korean Americans, you know, um, doing that thing. And so this was the first time that I like went and worked there as an adult and got to really just kind of live as a Korean person or amongst Korean people. And it wasn't that I didn't think I was, that I thought I was Korean and that place was going to reject me because I already kind of felt that before. It was more that even in that place, there's an expectation placed on me that I must know this place. And I could only reply back, I don't. Even down to even, you know, Director Bong, like he would speak one way to the American cast, which included me, but the English speaking cast. And um, he could shorthand with me, which for me, I couldn't fully understand that that was actually like a wonderful sign of respect and blessing that we were tight like that or like able to traverse those boundaries easily. But instead I kind of took it as like, oh, I'm being othered here too. And it was just a shakedown of my being, I think, during that experience. I think um, no one did it to me. It wasn't, it wasn't an oppression from anyone. It was just getting to see who you are so starkly in such a strange way and in such a literal way, but guised under play acting. And so, you know, like truly, again, another trip, like it was, it was really wild. And, um, you know, it, it was down to like, you know, as part of the ALF, I'm with, you know, majority white English speaking actors who I love all of them, but I was the kind of de facto, like, where do we go? And I'm mm -hmm. like, I'll be honest with you. I have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I know yeah. how to navigate myself around this place by just laying low. But if I'm supposed to be some proxy, like, good luck. Like, I'm just as bad as K is at translation, you know. And um, that was really, that was a hard one. It felt wonderful to do because I was still surrounded by incredible artists and, like, being part of a larger thing. But internally, 
it was very painful, but I couldn't even see that it was painful at the time because I was so excited. And then after I left, I was like, wow, I had been so tense. Like, I feel like I aged in that experience. It was rough. Now, I guess, though, the upside of that, having to go through that, is that that very thing of not quite being at home in Korea mm. was essentially what was you found out was being sought for burning, right? Right, right. Well, actually, actually, kind of. That's what I thought. <laughs> so, um, well, these are, these are, the, this is where, you know, again, like, I'm so lucky. When I look back, I'm just, it's just a series of lucky circumstances that, you know, I tried hard, but goodness gracious, like, how fortunate. So, <laughs> thank you, anybody, whoever's, whoever's doing, thank you. Um, but, <laughs> You know, after I got to do my press tour for Okja, I, I went on I went on a show where they said, "Who would you like to work with in the in in Korea? What director are you looking forward to working with?" And I was like, "Is it another director going to ask me to work for them? Like, can I even do that?" But <laughs> I, you know, I just kind of respectfully said, "I would love to." You know, I love director Lee Chang Dong. Like, director Lee Chang Dong is one of the greatest of all time, cross culturally. He's greatest of all time in humanity to me. And that would have been an honor and a privilege. And I just mentioned it offhand. And um, then, like a year later, I get a phone call in the middle of the night from director Bong being like, uh, director Lee wants to talk to you. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so uh, he, they send me this script. And even the more fortuitous thing was I was in London when I got that call and I was heading to Korea in two days anyhow. And so I got to re I got to read the script, loved it. And then I got to speak with director Lee about it for three consecutive days. And what was really strange was that script also found me at a time when I was kind of at an existential crossroads for myself that allowed me to access Ben in a way that was in a similar place. So well, let's just, was, uh, if anyone hasn't seen it yet, Ben is essentially, you know, the I think the phrase is used even in the movie, like a Gatsby-esque kind of young, wealthy guy in, in South Korea who's part of a sort of love tri triangle. I don't know if you can call it that, but it's essentially where the other guy involved is completely different. And yeah. Ben, it, you know, I guess Ben has, we, we know he's seen more of the world. He's, he's, you know, uh, living in a different, different style than the other guy. And, um, and then those just, and I guess we should say it's adapted from Murakami from a book that was called, or a novel is called Burning Barns. Here it is not barns that are burned at the, uh, urging of Ben, but rather, um, greenhouses and in this case your your experience just during the filming i mean not many movies you're going to ever be a part of in this country are going to run five months of a of a shoot right uh, mm. and then also you made a decision over such a long period of time to deliberately isolate yourself so what was that one that can't yeah. have been much more fun than uh oak show was yeah for you. <laughs> that honestly though that one was incredibly exhilarating for me actually like the pain of 
Okja's experience was not crossed over in that circumstance because I, you know, earlier you were mentioning the idea of, of, of kind of my Americanness as a juxtaposition to this character. But I, that's what I originally thought he was asking me to do. I thought he was asking me to play what Koreans call kyopo, which is like a foreigner, you know, like Korean American kid coming back. But he actually told me, he was like, no, 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 no. Like you have to get really good at Korean again and you have to be a Korean person, but you are beyond kind of a Korean person. You are just a cosmopolitan, worldly, universally minded, rich guy. And so, you know, I think, you know, Director Lee is such a genius. I think he assumed that if I went super hard at the Korean part, that the Americanness of me would still translate into this weird thing, unexplainable feeling from me. And so, and even, and, and on top of that too, he would, we would talk about how Ben talks. So, you know, a lot of people felt like Ben talked a strange type of Korean, but those are all purposeful things by making him speak in a very like strange cadence or um, in, in kind of ways that aren't normal vernacular. And so um, he, yeah, like what I loved about that experience was I got to understand who I was not juxtaposed to anyone else. And I, you know, to take it back to even the frustrations of Glenn, I think that my whole life, up until that point had mostly been an identity rooted in who I am in a co in concordance to others. Um, I think even Glenn was Glenn at first, but also he was Glenn to Maggie and he was Glenn to the group as this particular function. And I never felt what it was like to just be the fullness of me, even in my actual life, because, you know, I'm from a collectivist country where, um, and I'm in a minority situation in an immigrant mindset coming into the middle of the middle of the middle of America. And so talk about living in the gap of the gap of the gap, like you really, you know, my worth was really built on who I am in according, according to others. And um, that's not a unique thought to just our culture. But you know, that's just what I had to deal with. And so, you know, getting to play Ben was incredibly liberating because that was a guy that was just living him. And it was rough on my wife because <laughs> <laughs> we had just had our son mm -hmm. and um, God bless her. It, God bless her for all of it. But for me, it was, it was pretty wild. It was wonderful. And people will who have seen it obviously are kind of haunted by the sort of mystery at the end. I will ask you, mm. did you and, and director Lee get on the same page about what actually happened or, or not? Well, so director Lee about a third or maybe half of the way through the, through, through the, the film, he was like, you know, we're coming up to the point where you're going to have to decide what Ben has done or if he, if he has, or if he hasn't. And I want you to know that we're going to craft a specific narrative to kind of make it, you know, who, who knows, but ultimately the choice you have to make. And I tried to offer him up the answer and he's like, no, 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 no. You make the choice. 
And um, I made the choice. And then at the end of filming, he was like, what did you choose? And I said, I'm not telling. (laughs) 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 And I haven't told anybody. But it almost doesn't, it actually doesn't matter. Yeah, but that's now going to haunt me. I need to know. know. (laughs) All right. So from there, I think probably fairly soon after, you must have gone right into another, you know, the last of the ones that we're going to talk about, which, I mean, it's interesting how each of these has that subtext with your life where now, yeah, this Minari is not your overtly your family's story, but it is Mm -hmm. a story of immigrants to the middle of the middle of nowhere. Um, Mm -hmm. In this case, the the director, Lee Isaac Chung's, and it's Arkansas rather than Michigan or, um, but in a sense, he's asking you to play his father, which sounds a lot like your father who Mm -hmm. you're saying has this farming uh, Mm -hmm. connection as well. So I guess just, did you even, you know, did this script come out of the blue or did you know this director as well? Well, um, this part is incredibly crazy, but um, Isaac is actually a cousin by marriage, my wife's cousin. Really? I didn't, yeah, I didn't my know wife that. is from Arkansas. Oh, my and God. And she's a Korean woman from Arkansas. And um, Isaac, I only met a handful of times in our interactions. I saw his first film, Win Young Rangabo, um, at, in Chicago when I first started dating my wife. And, you know, I never really met him or talked to him. Like, I, he was living completely parallel paths. He had already been to Cannes by that point. You know, he had done his thing. <laughs> and so um, at the time he was teaching, I heard, in, in Korea. And then all of a sudden I get this script from uh, my agent, Christina Chow. And she was like, hey, we represent your cousin. And I'm like, who's my cousin? What are you talking about? And she was like, Isaac. And I was like, oh, shit, you represent Isaac. That's awesome. And she hands me this script and I was blown away. I was blown away because I've been, I'll be honest, I had a lot of wariness over the last couple of years of doing something that was rooted deep in culture or identity. Um, Not that this is about identity ultimately, but in culture, because um, I think I was wary of the majority gaze or the white gaze that kind of pervades these stories from feeling more free or accessible. Um, I was, I always felt like it was explanatory or I felt like it was servicing to like kind of recontextualize and put us in a new box that spoke for all of us. And in that way, I didn't flat out reject it, you know, all the power to those things, but I, it wasn't a personal journey for me. It felt like, you know, it, just like I said with Awesome Eddie's Prom, it's nothing like Awesome Eddie's Prom, but it was just like I was just trying to find me. And my Koreanness was going to be with me regardless, anyhow. I just wanted to feel the fullness of me. And when I read his script, what I read was such a truthful rendering and an honest rendering of a peep of people, of humans that also resonated to me in a way that I could identify with culturally that I was like, wow, this is it. Like, this is the one, like, this is the one that my generation dreams of making about our parents. And I remember getting the script and calling Isaac and being like, 
I want to do this, but can we change? Can I play the sun? And then can you change it so that there's flashbacks and there's a present and a past and I get it and you get like somebody else to play the dad because I was like (laughs) I don't know if I can do this and you know he was so encouraging he was like I think you're right for this like I think you can do this I think something about it just feels right and I haven't told anyone this part but what's really strange about it all that made me understand that I just had to do it was so burning is based off of Haruki Murakami's short story, Barn Burning, which is based off of William Faulkner's Barn Burning, which is about essentially this Minari, which is a patriarch of a family dragging his family through his pain and his stubbornness and his will. And I was like, what the, what the (laughs) hell? How? How does something like this present itself like this? Mm-hmm. And so I just did it. And I um, fearfully and in awe and in just such turmoil about it because I was so worried. But, you know, also such a blessing to be handed something that you must do. Could you have played the part as well had you not yourself recently become a father? I don't think so. Like, sure, I could have postured, I could have made, I could have, I could have, I could have um, pretended. Um, But, you know, we really played out some things in that film. Yeti is incredible. Uh, Han Yeti is incredible. Yoon Yeo-jung is incredible. Alan, Noel, both incredible. Um, You know, everybody's so wonderful that we we played out some real, real family stuff and I wouldn't have known otherwise. Not, not deep, not at the depths that I do now. So this movie goes to Sundance for the world premiere. And I believe at the premiere, you wind up sitting next to your dad. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about that night. Uh, I mean, kind of to recontextualize like what a dream this is for someone of my generation to, to, to make this for my parents' generation. Um, you know, it's also the, at least for me, I felt very severed from my parents after immigrating um, and slowly more and more severed as time went on because the language got tougher, um, the understanding got tougher, the cultural specificity, specificities and dynamics got tougher And all of a sudden it was two people that were barely kind of communicating with each other, just only able to role play with each other, you know, just be a father and a son, as opposed to like a human talking to their other human that's in their family. And we could never access it there. And sitting next to my dad and having gone through, you know, what internally for me was you know, a deeply empathetic experience of what he might have gone through as well was, I I guess I want to, it was also this, it was that, you know, at the time, because some role like this perhaps or a rendering of a Korean man of this era hadn't really been done in American cinema before, um, I had to fight a lot of the demons of like a larger 
catch-all idea of who our Korean parents were or my father was. Um, because, I'm, you know, a lot of us don't talk to our parents because there's no real way to connect that way. Um, even if you don't have a language barrier, it's hard. And coming from that place, like, I had to be careful not to play a caricature of a Korean man at that time. And the eventual reality, uh, the awareness that I gained was that I am my father. And I got to be careful how I say this because I'm going to cry probably. But um, yeah, I am my father. And to know and stand in his shoes at a different time, in a different circumstance, but to know the same feelings and like the desires. <clears throat> Sorry. And the intentions and all those things. That's what was communicated after the credits rolled. And I looked over at my dad and he was crying and <clears throat> I was crying and he just looked at me in a way where he was like, sorry, I gotta, he, he looked at me in a way where he was like, I know that you know now. That's a, that's an amazing gift, right? I mean, oh, words, yeah. words cannot necessarily, you can, it's a lot in some ways, weirdly for what a movie costs and entails and whatever that's mm. easier than having just a overt <laughs> conversation right yeah yeah and it, it the i think the power of it too was that i don't think i ever could have had that conversation i don't i don't think i could have i've tried many times before to contextualize it to try to translate it to try to have him see what i'm seeing but there's so many barriers in the way that it's really just a feeling in the end. And I think for my dad to see a rendering of something similar that he went through was cool because maybe he had, maybe, maybe, maybe I mean, like one, he's validated, he's seen perhaps, but also there's a trust in me now, you know, it's like, you know, there's, he's not holding on so hard. He's he's learning to let go then to be like, yeah, it's passed down. And so, yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, last <laughs> question I'll I'll put to you. Take me into your mindset right now, and let's just set up before you answer. These are, as far as I'm aware, the best reviews of your career uh, mm. that you're getting for <laughs> Minari. And it's not that there weren't very good ones for burning you were winning awards and all kinds of stuff before but this is like uh taking it to a new level and in the for for such a personal story i, I imagine that might be extra gratifying mm. b we're now in the middle of a freaking pandemic and just going yeah. through a, an election and all that which will uh mess with anybody a little bit but i don't know how far along you are with the humans which i saw on broadway it was a best play Tony winner. And now it's coming mm -hmm. to the screen and you're a key part of that, um, among other upcoming stuff, I guess just what's your, what's your mindset right now? Do you, do you feel like the, the currency, not necessarily literally, but just like what this moment could bring for you, you know, what do you want to do with it? Do you want to go back and re you know, you're, you're sort of, moved away from the comedy that got you into this business in the mm. first place. Is that something you want to go back to and do more? Or are there other things that 
uh, are sort of on the to-do list that now you hope to be able to do. Just on November, what's today? November uh, 9th, 2020, (laughs) give us a time capsule. Oh, man. I wish I had better answers for questions like this. (laughs) Um, I think what I've learned over my short existence is that every time I plan, every time I try to control it, it never works the way that I want it to. And um, if anything, it really just sets me up for a lot of disappointment. Again, like I feel very fortunate that I've fallen forward into a lot of these projects presenting themselves to me in a way that feels in some ways like so faithful. You know, it feels like the universe is just saying like, here's what you're doing next. And you're so lucky to be doing this. And um, it might be hard or scary, but like, good luck, because that's what you're doing. And, you know, I th- I think of folks that spend their whole lives looking for what they're supposed to be doing. And I think in that regard, like, the gratitude that I have for my life up until this point is pretty immense. And I kind of want to honor that by not necessarily grabbing on too hard. I, 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 I get it. We have to make informed decisions. But um, I don't know. I, I really am just, I'm just kind of trying to live a life, a, like a life too. And while I'm doing that, sometimes these scripts come by that want to be made. And I get so lucky to be a part of them. And um, I have some projects that are, you know, kind of set for the future. And those are I'm excited for, you know. But in terms of like in this moment, <laughs> what I want to do with you know, whatever has been built to this point, I I really don't know. I think I I worry in some ways that if I try to like cash it in or use it somehow, it'll really come back to bite me in the ass. So (laughs) I'm going to just respect it and um, (laughs) not question it and just do right by it if I can. Well, enjoy the the response to this performance and movie in particular, because I think it's, I appreciate it's that. only going to grow as people now are going to get a chance to see it. And, um, it is really special and I so appreciate you doing this. So thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.